And we have Children's Church. If you have children headed to Children's Church, Mr. Boyden is ready to take them down. Lauren, you go fight the good fight. My message this morning for first and second hour is one long message with a communion service in between. And I'm looking at uh, what's ahead of us. I try to be ambitious. And I try to be more, more than ambitious, optimistic. But as we look at history, as we look at uh, what's happened before us, what's going on before, as you look at what's happening now and you wonder how could we possibly... For example, um, kind of perusing Victor Davis Hanson's book, The Second World Wars, where he goes through a lot of the detail of what was happening leading up to and, and around uh, World War II. You wonder, with the way our, we are now, the way the kids are just in constant free fall with satisfy my urge to be entertained. It's the only driving you know, compulsion for them so much. How could these boys with their computers and their gadgets and their fixation on screen time? I mean, these kids are 13, 14 hours a day. You know, they send them to Camp Good News to get them out of the house. And I asked some of the kids at camp this last summer, just out of curiosity, how much time do you spend playing video games a day? I don't know. Like, it's a, like how, long, how long do you breathe? How many, how many hours a day do you spend breathing was kind of that, the sense. And I said, just think about it. Just count it up. And in a day of, um, you know, they're getting up at 12 or whatever in the summertime, going to bed at whatever time mom and dad requires, let's say 2 a.m. It's only 14 hours of consciousness in a 24-hour day. Gives them 10 hours sleep. You're laughing like this isn't every household. Uh, I mean, we're doing, we're doing everything we can for that to be true at our household, but it's, it's everywhere. In that space of 14 conscious hours, the child said, probably 13 hours, they're playing video games while they eat food. And I'm not, this isn't a message on video games, it's just stupid. But I'm just saying, if you look at the kids coming up and you try to imagine what my grandfather's generation did to kick Germany out of Europe, or out of France, and, uh, and finally you know, nailed the coffin shut on the Nazis. As they prepared for the million man invasion of the mainland Japan, after we did a little science and figured out how to avoid having to do that with the, uh, with the flight of the Enola Gay, which is the nuclear bombing of Japan. You think about what was involved culturally here in the West, and you try to say, can our 17 and 18-year-olds rise to that occasion? Do they have what it takes to man up and say, adulthood is now. Let's sharpen our knives. Let's practice our rifle skills. Let's do what's necessary. And you try to imagine in mass where it's a draft, where everybody goes. And um, we haven't had a world war in a long time. Hey, Joe, we're getting some sort of flickering of that that light there and I don't know if it's the heat or what but I'm about to have a, a seizure um, <clears throat> now that would be hilarious for, for New Year's Day if I did 
and um, but but only for some of you would get it anyway, because um, <laughs> that's your sense of humor. But just imagine what the kids could do um, if you gave them that task, that calling. And for the most part, because they haven't been out outside, because they haven't been on their bikes, because they haven't grown up hardy, because they haven't learned how to deal with people face-to-face, because they haven't sorted it out on the sandlot, this is how we play, and we, we have to work within some agreed rules to work together, because they haven't done all these things. It's A lot of the key skills that those gritty 30-year-olds, drill sergeants, put them through to get them ready to do what they had to do in the Normandy invasion, you just can't imagine these kids being able to do something like that. It's very hard. But here's the other side of that. Where are the 30-year-olds? Where are those drill sergeants that the kids think they're 60, but they're just 30-year-olds, but they're made of uh, high-carbon steel? And where are those people? They're, we call those millennials, almost. Not quite millennials, I guess. But, but where, where's that group? And I'm not talking about anyone in this room. I'm saying as you look at the culture, you're in a time you're in a, a, a time capsule here, right? We're just saying something that was really, 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 really old. I mean, it was almost an 80-year-old song. I mean, super, super. Well, maybe almost a 100-year-old song. I mean, we are just ancient. <laughs> you cough and dust comes out. You know, we're just we're knuckle-dragging dinosaur people here. Fred Flintstone, nice to meet you. Right? But but what? Seriously, the culture. Where is it? And, and so what I'm trying to say in all that is I am not super ambitious or optimistic about what man is able to do, what our culture is able to produce. Um, it's pretty bleak. But yeah, I've got a really bright tie on to go with my really bright slide because I want us to be realistic. Realism in a theistic frame in the world that God is actually construing is intensely, can't even uh, look at it directly, bright and ambitious and optimistic. The future is so bright, as they said in the 80s, I have to wear shades because of Christ and because of what God has said and because of what's coming. And so I've tried to tell you to look at the culture and then be ashamed. And then I've asked you to now look at why should you rejoice? Why should we be optimistic? And this picture is um, a mixed blessing to me. The thing I have behind me, um, I've been on a road very much like this, and what happens to me, notice that if you're driving on the right side of the road, then you are on the side of the road that's opposite from the mountain. The mountain's on the left side, and you're driving, let's say, up the mountain. This looks just like the Rocky Mountain National Forest roads in Colorado. I still have trauma from driving these roads up near the overhang where you actually see, um, they say this is where there's a sign that says now you're entering tundra because you're up so high and you can see reindeer and stuff and Santa Claus and everything. But, um, but what's happening to your body and your brain as you drive on this road is um, you feel very much in a car, it doesn't feel that way as you look at it, but in a car driving on this road, you feel like you're about to drive off the face of the earth. It is scary. And uh, that's not the first thought I had when I saw this picture. Uh, The first thought I had was, that is a beautiful, not sunset, that's a sunrise. We're driving east, not west, okay? (laughs) 
And we're and it and it's going to be awesome. It's a beautiful day. Like today, it's an amazing, beautiful compliment to what we're talking about in terms of Christian optimism. But um, but it's also scary. It's a beautiful picture. But if you're driving this road on the right side, it can be very scary because here's what happens: the mountain road turns, but you don't see the road turning. You see over the front of your hood of your car, you see nothing, and nothing is going to kill you. And you start to feel like, I mean, you know, in your brain, you're thinking, the road turns, I curve. The people behind you that live there are trying to push you. It's minimum speed, 45 miles an hour. And you want to go zero miles an hour. <laughs> and, they're, and they're zooming around you in BMW motorcycles with their little BMW motorcycle suits. And they're like, what are you doing on a mountain road in a motorcycle? And I guess motorcycle people know. But anyway, so, so, so you're driving on this road and you don't drive off the cliff. You feel, your body feels like you will because that's what your eyes are seeing, but you learn that, no, you're going to curve around. The trip down the hill is way less nerve-wracking because the mountain is on your right side, and the worst thing that can happen is we kind of scrub into the mountain, mess up the side of the car. It'll be okay. We're not going to fall off into an oblivion because you can't tell, but on the right side of that that, um, rail is a a 300-foot drop-off. And uh, the rail isn't really going to help you that much um, if you're in uh, a heavy vehicle. And so um, this is a scary thing, but it's also a very beautiful thing. And sometimes we feel like we're going to fall off a cliff. And sometimes um, we need to stop feeling and start thinking. Uh, The last time I drove on a road like this was at Camp Arete. I took the little boys, Samuel and Isaiah were little. And they were in the back in car in car boosters in the back seat of the rented car, and I was in a care of a convoy following all the camp people up to this overhang space. And there was a place where the grade was like steep enough. It felt like it was really steep. It felt like steep enough, and the the fall offs were so close. And I wanted to see exactly where my tire was with respect to the to the road, and I couldn't because you can't. I'm like, we should have some sort of cameras on the tires to see where it is on the road. I started singing hymns. I was singing it as well with my soul. I was so in need to calm down and just focus on the task physically without letting my imagination work. And, and it really was a hard thing. The kids were like, what's wrong, Dad? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> we're fine. And um, then I, the next time I drove in Houston, I learned, I remembered the overpasses that never really scared me. Now I get in these giant overpasses and go up 60, 70 feet in the air. I'm not good with that now. <laughs> it's very stressful. But the point is that you have a beautiful uh, life that's ahead of you, and it is super optimistic if you think and take what God has said. But um, if you feel your way along, and if you look around, if you look at the wrong things, you can feel like you're about to fall off a cliff. And that's going to be true probably in the coming year. And so I want to talk about having a holy ambition because we need to be that BMW motorcycle zipping around, just driving on because we know where we're going. We know what the road is ahead. We know what is in our future and we need to drive with confidence. Now, I believe that if I lived up in Rocky Mountain National Forest area and I was driving up on this road all the time, I think I would be pretty good at it because I had practiced. But the one time, the first time, it's very scary. There's a bridge in, um, um, in Virginia. I forget the name of it. It was, it was inaugurated by Harry Truman, the Truman administration. And it's on one of the interstates. I forget where, but it's in southern Virginia. 
and it has a really steep grade and it's two lane minimum speed, 45 miles an hour. And you feel like you're driving, you know, over the St. Louis arch to cross. Um, I, I think it's the Potomac river actually. And, uh, oh, same thing. Like, I don't want to ever go to Newport news again that way, because I'll have to drive on that interstate on that bridge. And, um, and it's, it's really it makes for an exciting life. So let's talk about the mission that hasn't changed and that won't change in terms of our holy ambition. Um, in 1876, in the January edition of The Truth magazine, published by James Hall Brooks, who turns out to be great-great-grandpa in the faith, my pastor is trained by Lewis Berry Chaver, who is trained by C.I. Schofield, who is trained by James Hall Brooks, who was certainly an associate and probably strongly influenced by John Nelson Darby. James Hall Brooks was the pastor of a Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, Missouri, and today there still remains Brooks Bible Institute, which is... Um, his namesake and uh, what's left of his ministry down there. He's called affectionately the father of American dispensationalism. And so he is incredibly effective. Uh, And if you read his readings for his writings, for example, his book, The Way Made Plain about salvation, you'll say, oh, that's where we got it. But he's just using the same method of Bible interpretation that that Darby proposed and that we use, which is a literal plain sense interpretation, including with prophecy. Well, anyway, in his magazine, he published this anonymous uh, poem called Every Year, and I wanted to share it with you. Every year, and this is in the January, this is for the new year, but it's every year. Does each grow fairer? That's every year, grow fairer with the beauty of our Lord? Shining with his wondrous likeness, seen in every deed and word. Is, is the new year bright or, and more bright? every? And that really is every day because you're walking with him is the challenge. Every year in strength and meekness are we treading where he trod, going forth, the lost, to gather to the family of God. See, every year is a question about mission. Every year, oops, if our going forth is hindered with the reaper's sickle bright, if we may not toil with others, when the harvest fields are white, are we pleading with the master? If we cannot plead with men, like a fountain ever springing, does our cry go up for them? Now, this is a really important point. It's kind of the, the, the central point of the poem. Is we have a reason d'etre, a raison d'etre, a reason to exist, our reason for being. And as we think about things like New Year, because we did tick the calendar one, and now it's the new year, do we still understand it's the same mission? Are we still invigorated with it's a fresh, it's a new mission, it's a new opportunity every day? And if we don't have the ability to speak with people, if they're closed off to us, say like in uh, New England, do we plead with God? He's not closed off to us. If the people are a closed door, God is never a closed door. He told us what he wants us to do. It's in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, and 20. Are we pleading with the master if we cannot plead with men? Every year is his dear presence like a glad unspoken song, prelude low of hallelujahs, rising from a white robe throng. Now that is a beautiful poetic line, but do you get it? The question is, do you have a personal relationship with God so that your life is an offering of song and praise to him? Like in Ephesians chapter 5, where we're giving thanks at all times, to the Father in the name of the Son for all things, like we're singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Is this real to you every year? Is it like a glad unspoken song that he's with you? 
Why prelude low of hallelujahs? A low means a, a, like a den of, of offering. Everyone's kind of singing hallelujah. What's a prelude? It's not a sports car by Honda in the 90s. What's a prelude? It's something, it's an anticipation. So what are we, what prelude to what? 80 plus, however many years you get, is the prelude to eternity. And what is this short phase of life for? It's preparation. Do you love him and so hear him and so obey him? That's the challenge. It's personal. Prelude low of hallelujahs, rising from our white-robed throng, we're clothed in the righteousness of God. Every year he draweth nearer or the dark hills far away. He, our royal bridegroom, cometh for his golden bridal day, the coming marriage of the Lamb. Are we waiting for his coming? He hits you with this poem, first with the challenge of mission. And if you can't be on mission in, in the way you'd like to, pleading with men, are you pleading with God for them? Remember, I'm always telling you the list. Pray for the people more than you talk to them about God. Talk to God about, about them more than you talk to them about God. Are we waiting for his coming? See, Christianity is in anticipation. The Christian life is looking forward, not down, not, oh, what's going to happen in 2023? Two pessimistic thoughts came across my radar in the last couple of days on this coming year. The first is, this year is probably going to be bad for lots of reasons. The economic forecasts are bad. There's all kinds of reasons that we could say, oh, no. Here comes 2023. Remember when we said, can't wait till 2020 is over? And then January 6, 2021, we're like, well, we can't wait till 2021 is over. In a way, it'll never be over. And, and, and then, you know. But so, so the one thought was that it's going to be bad. The other is that nothing changes with the calendar. Just because the calendar ticks one doesn't mean anything changes. So it's just all the same. Humdrum, same, same. Every day is supposed to be renewed and refreshed as we're walking with Christ and the wonderful work he's prepared for us and the power of the Holy Spirit he's given us. Are we waiting for his coming? Are we listening for his feet? Ready in our fair adorning Christ, our King, our Lord to meet. The challenge of the poem obviously is, are you living now in anticipation of what we're promised, of what's coming? And that is a message that we need to dust off probably every single day. This is how you devote your life to God, as you think through what he said and you ask questions like, what is my life for and am I about what that is? What's my life for and am I I on that mission? And we do that every single day. And that means a couple of key steps you have to take every single day. Don't start with, oh, I've got a load of responsibility. I don't know how I could possibly do it. That's not how you start. You do have a loaded responsibility, and there is no way in your strength you can do it. Don't start with, Jesus is coming soon. I recommend we not start there because there's all kinds of questions that you can get like, well, what about the things that I might have liked to accomplish for me? What about all those family questions? And what about the kids? And I wanted to see the kids grow up. And what about their grandkids? My, their kids, my grandkids, what would they look like? And how am I going to miss out on all these fun and blessed things? And blah, 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 blah. Because I'm starting with eschatology. Start with relationship. Get your perspective where God is so that you can appreciate the mission and the anticipation of his coming. You start with a relationship with him. And the way you have a relationship with someone is through communication. You communicate with God by talking to him in prayer. 
And you don't practice sophomoric theology and say, well, God already knows everything, so I don't need to tell him anything. That flies directly in the face of a lot of biblical revelation. What you're supposed to do is tell him everything and talk to him about everything and talk to him about it some more. And sometimes you just need to turn off the radio or the TV or the MP3 player or whatever the source is or the podcast or whatever the thing is that's the constant stimulation and diversion. Shut it off and then start generating some content to him as you talk to him. That's the first thing, I would say one of the first two things that you have to do. But a relationship is communication. And the first step in communication is to communicate. But to receive communication also from him. And I know that we all have ways we'd like to be talked to by God. I want a burning bush experience. Right? I'm guaranteed that when Jesus comes for us in the clouds, so will we ever be with the Lord. And I'll know him face to face and I'll know him as I'm known and it'll be marvelous. But until then... Apparently, the order of the day is that God talks to you through every page of his word, through everything that the Spirit has inspired the prophets and apostles to tell us. It is a love letter from God, this word of God, and so you have to avail yourself of it every day. You have to be in the word. We have to be in the word if we want a relationship with God. And here's how that works. Do you want a relationship, yes or no? Yes, I do. Well, to the extent that you want the relationship, hear from him and talk to him. Let's do some actual communication and get some momentum in that relationship. That's the deal. And if you say, well, I don't really feel like being in the Word today, you're saying I don't really have a relationship with Him today. I'm really not growing in my knowledge of Him, in my intimacy with Him. I'm not coming more and more into um, fellowship and, and enjoying his, um, his blessings of relationship. And so <clears throat> that's the challenge, and this is how devotion works. So let's talk about our ambition. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, it says in the New American Standard, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. See, I'm telling you to start with relationship, not with mission, not with the end that he's coming for you, but with relationship with him right now. It doesn't change in the sense of it's always available, and it, but it does change in the sense that we're always growing. And we grow with respect to our salvation as we come to know him better and better by taking in his word and talking to him about it. But we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And in the context, and I've ripped this out of its context, in the context, the Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthians what really matters. And it is not the physical, material things of this life or the details of life or even the human relationships These are all secondary matters. They're details of life. They're part of the package, but they're not the thing. The thing is your relationship with God. So whether your body is in the ground and you're absent from the body and present with the Lord, or whether you're functioning in your body now before physical death and you're absent from the Lord and present in this body. See, that's the picture. That's what he's talking about. Whether home or absent, our ambition is to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the bema of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Two things are happening in verses 9 and 10. The first is the relationship I want to be pleasing to him. And the second is the consequence, its cause and effect. I want him in his pleasure to tell me what his pleasure, what the result of that pleasure is. What is his evaluation of my ambitious life being pleasing to him. (laughs) 
In verse 9, there will be some that will read that, blink at it, and look away because it contradicts their theology. And here's the way the theology runs. In an overemphasis of those things that are true for all believers by position in Christ, you are righteous in position in Christ. That's what we mean by positional truth. You're in Christ by the baptism of the Spirit. They'll say, well, I'm already acceptable. I'm already accepted. I'm already perfectly righteous in position. I'm already, I'm already, I'm already. And so the secret is to tell Paul that I'm already pleasing to him. And therefore, there will be in this overdrive of positional truth, which positional truth is the, is the center from which everything sprouts. But in overdriving the seed, positional truth, they'll say there is nothing required or expected in your practice to be pleasing to him because you're already pleasing in position. It's an overdriving outside of the biblical revelation of this doctrine of your positional truth. You are pleasing to him in Christ. As God looks at you, he sees his son. He's pleased with his son in whom I'm well pleased. So you can say, I'm resting in the fact that God is pleased with me. This is good theology. It's positional truth. It's, it's our baseline. And Paul is building on that to your experience in your practice, in your living out your position. And so we have to draw a distinction, beloved, between position in Christ and experiential sanctification, walking by the Spirit, living this life step by step as we trust Him and as therefore we, in trusting Him, we obey Him. And this is what happens. I will say obey, and my overdriven uh, position people will say, oh, no, no, that's legalism. When you're talking about obedience, you don't understand that you're already accepted in the beloved. You're already perfectly righteous. You're already, you're already, you're already. And the truth is that this has been tried before. And in a, in a very strange effort of perfectionism to say that truly believer, truly saved is truly no, no longer sinful, is without sin. That's been tried before. So that then it gets rolled back on itself, either in an Arminian or Calvinistic frame, and will say, well, if you're a true believer, then you'll truly perform to whatever standard we imagine being the standard. So a true believer really acts like it, and you can't really be a believer if you do X, Y, or Z. And so that person's not really a believer by their practice, by their performance. And so again, we're jamming phase two, experiential sanctification, the walk by the Spirit. We're jamming it all back into phase one and saying, if you're truly a Christian, then you'll truly perform. Because otherwise, Paul can mean nothing in Ephesians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. He can mean nothing about having as, as our ambition to please him. But if we let the Bible just speak, if we let it tell us in its own terms, if we let Paul tell the Corinthians, you're knucklehead Christians, you're getting it wrong. You don't have this ambition, but you need it. You need to make this adjustment, he's telling the Corinthians. First and second Corinthians are corrective, punitive letters from beginning to end. And we need the benefit of all the corrections because so much marvelous New Testament revelational theology comes out of these corrections. And sometimes we're Corinthians in our thinking. Sometimes we're carnal. 
We're walking as mere men, Paul says, like unbelievers. And Paul tells those who are sanctified, who are washed, who are set apart to God positionally, who are in Christ forever, who have the Holy Spirit and cannot lose him, who have God's perfect righteousness imputed to them. He tells them they're walking like unbelievers. It's called fleshly, sarkikos in 1 Corinthians 2. And my brother who doesn't like the word carnal, right, doesn't understand English translation of the Greek Bible. I mean, I'm beginning to understand it. But carnal means from the sin nature of the flesh, walking according to the flesh like you must do as a non-believer. You don't have the Spirit of God. You don't have the Spirit renewed in you that is from God. You don't have the capacity to walk in new life. But see, this is what happens by my, by, with bad theology. As we don't let the text set us up with our categories, we understand something, it resonates with us, and then we try to force everything into that. What I'm trying to tell you, beloved, is the only way to have eternal life, the only way to gain it, is by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no other avenue to the Father except through the Son. According to John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And that is absolutely true. In the very moment that you put your personal faith in Jesus Christ, where you can say, I am trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for me, that his work on the cross is sufficient to pay for my sins, that my eternal life depends on nothing but him and only on him, and there is no other way. The moment you actually express that childlike faith and you trust in Jesus Christ is the moment of your new birth, of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, of all the many things we've been studying in the riches of divine grace. It is the moment of your redemption, the moment that you can say you are satisfactory to the Father and propitiation and all the benefits of the blood of Christ, all the things that are true from the very moment you trust in Christ. And Paul is talking to people that that is true of in Second Corinthians 5. And he is telling them that because this is true in what we'll call phase one, positional sanctification, you have expectations of a life walking by the Spirit that is pleasing to God. It is not some mystical, magical breakthrough revelation to say that if we teach obedience to Christ, we haven't really understood our position in Christ. There is no obedience to Christ without indwelling Holy Spirit. But absolutely be certain that this phase of life as a believer in Christ is obedience in the power of the Spirit, as you trust in God through what he said. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. We do not, in our experience, just look back at our position and say, it doesn't matter what I think, say, or do. It doesn't matter what I do in my spiritual life. It doesn't matter whether I walk by the Spirit or whether I obey all the commands that were given regarding the Holy Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Be filled by the Spirit. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. All imperatives, all commands. It doesn't matter what I do with those commands because I'm settled in my position in Christ. This is what the Lordship community does uh, attacks us about when we insist on the grace of God. They say, well, you're just saying that if you believe, then it doesn't matter how you live. They're saying if you believe, then you're not required to do works. They're saying if you believe, then, uh, then you could just live however you want. 
And what they mean is, if you live however you want, if you don't do the works, if you don't walk with God, then you won't go to hell or to the lake of fire in the final judgment. That's what they mean. But there's a whole lot of biblical revelation that says there's more to eternal life than not going to the lake of fire. There's more to the Christian life than did I trust in Christ. That's how it starts, but then we live it. We walk by faith and we walk by the Spirit. So what I'm trying to present to you is, there is the initial faith in Christ that settles you for eternity in terms of your position. But that position is calling forth everywhere in the New Testament a life of walking in dependence on the Spirit and faith obedience to Christ. And that needs to be refreshed or renewed for us every single day. There is no greater ambition you can have than to say, my actions are pleasing to him. Now, how can I know that he means my actions? When he says our ambition is to be pleasing to him in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, how do I know that he's talking in terms of my ambition and is pleasing him being pleased with me? How do I know that it refers to actions? Ephesians 2.10 would be one place. You jump out of the passage, go to Ephesians, go from the punitive letter to the commendatory letter to the Ephesians. What if I just stay right in the context? Is there something in this passage that tells me that pleasing to him is directly related to my actions? The deeds in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that I'm receiving recompense for. He didn't say recompense for my position in Christ. He said, for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. And there's two possible interpretations. There's the pagan interpretation that says, see, you have to do good works in order to have salvation because everything gets jammed back into phase one. No, you don't get saved by your good works. When I say pagan, I don't mean this to be offensive to those that subscribe to that theology. I really don't. I mean, it's the same as the Egyptians saying that uh, when you go across the river, sticks or whatever, the, uh, whichever the fake gods is, weighs your heart against a feather. And that's a meritorious challenge to see whether your life's works resulted in a heart that was light and guilt-free or heavy and full of sin and wickedness. And if your heart doesn't pass the test, then the, the, the monster eats you, okay? But if you do, if, you, if your heart weighs uh, the same as a feather, then you can go on into the afterlife and have whatever the Egyptians thought was great. You need little jars with your brains and stuff in it to go there around your tomb. You need your, your artifacts from your life and all that. I'm sorry, that's Egyptian eschatology and theology. It's pagan. It's a pagan idea that I have to work to be pleasing to God in the sense of eternal life, in terms of, of, of having a relationship with him. But it's intensely Christian that if I have this relationship and I've been given all these marvelous privileges, then I'm obviously given in this relationship much to do for God's pleasure. And it's the greatest and highest possible the greatest and highest possible privilege that God is including us in His works. It's God's works that He wants to do through us, of course, that we're discussing. Those deeds in the body, whether good or bad. So you've got the pagan interpretation of verse 10, that you're, you're judged for your works whether you go to heaven or hell. Or you have the Christian interpretation that Paul's talking to only believers who will only be the ones at the bema seat of Christ, only Christians, 
at the judgment seat of Christ who will, we, all of us, will be evaluated for our life works in the power of the Spirit. I gave you the Holy Spirit. I gave you my word. I invited you to a personal relationship day by day through the word and prayer, walking by the Spirit. I invited you to this. Did you live it? Did you avail yourself of it? What were the deeds that you did in the body? What were they given all this capacity and potential and opportunity? That, that is the potential before us. That is the beauty of Christian ambition. Here it is in the Greek, diokai philo meumatha eta en demuntes eta ek demuntes. Do you hear that? En demuntes ek demuntes. It doesn't come out to you in English, but in and out. En is in, ek, where we get the word exit, ek, out. In the body, out of the body, at home, out of, out of the house. It's very parallel the way Paul says it. You are a stoi autoi ani to be pleasing to him. It says, therefore, based on all that he said in the lead up in this paragraph about whether you're physically alive or physically dead, whether your body's alive or your body's dead, which is to us, it's unthinkable to go beyond that. I just, I know I'm alive because I'm, I'm alive. And we think it's a big dirt nap or just a big black. No, there is the absence from the body and presence with the Lord is your destiny. It's your destiny. It is inevitable that everybody continues on forever. Those in Christ will be with the Lord. Those without Christ are going to be separated from him forever. And this is, this is a very short phase. You have to understand that this life is short and every day is super precious because God has a call on it. He has an expectation. You have an opportunity for success as you walk in faith and that faith obedience. Therefore, also, we have as our ambition... That's this word, one word, philotomumetha, philotomumetha, and I'll break that down for you in a second. This one verb we're translating, we have as our ambition. You have different translations. The Holman Christian says our aim. I think the King James might say it as our aim. It's very light the way it's translated. This powerful, big word in, in the New American Standard, ambition. I think it's a good translation. We have as our ambition, eta, weather. In the house, and demia, I think, is the ver is the noun that just it means the status of being at home. And ekdemia, these are participles. Whether being in the house or out of the house, whether being at home or whether absent, okay, whatever the circumstances of my even life or death physically, my ambition is the same. Whether it's twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three, whether the kids are walking with the Lord or whether they're not whether the wife is, is walking with the Lord or not, whether we have a good relationship or not, whether your husband is doing his job before God or not, whatever the circumstances, even to the point of whether I'm alive or dead, my ambition is unwavering, pleasing. You are estoy, autoi, auto enai. Pleasing to him to be. He fronts it with the, uh, the, the adjective that we want to be pleasing to him, pleasing. These two words, uh, eurestos and philotomai, go together in Greek literature prior to the Bible time and contemporary to the Bible. In the Koine period, there's a sense in which these two words go together. Let me show you just a little bit of it. Whet your appetite for a second hour after our communion service. 
Philotomeomai is that word, philotomeomai, and I've spelled it out in English because I know that most of you don't read all of these letters, but you can read most of them. You can see an I here and an O and a T and an O, and if you squint and look at that U there, that's an M. See how that's an M? You have my permission to write your lowercase m's that way from now on if you'd like to. Those of you who's taken any kind of sciences where they use the, the, this move for micro, it's the, it's the symbol for micro when you're 10 to the negative sixth on something. And you see an E, an O, another M, an A, and an I. You almost can read this whole word. It's just this weird thing right here. Well, that's the coolest letter in all, all the world. It's just a fee. And they don't have Fs in Greek. They have phi, which we put as P-H-I. That's, that's the F. And then L, this upside down Y, is a lambda, half-life. Philotomeomai. And wh- why am I teaching you to read Greek letters? Because you can almost sound out the Greek words, and if you can get to the Greek word that Paul is actually using, you can burn off a lot of the bad theology people have thrown onto those words into English words that have nothing to do with it. Philos and Time are the two pieces of this word. Philo Philo, to love in a, in a, a familial type love, philos, is love. And time, the other piece of this, tomai, comes from time, which in English spells T-I-M-E, but it has nothing to do with our concept of chronos, of time. Time, and it means honor. And so etymologically, the two pieces come together, and it's very close in how the Greeks used it, the love of honor. Now, how does that mean we have it as our ambition? How is love of honor have to do with our ambition? Well, Arn Gingrich th- throws some light on this. They say special honor, Time, was accorded to persons who rendered exceptional service to the state or other institutions, and many wealthy persons endeavored to outdo one another in phil- philanthropic public service. Philo, Josephus, and, um, and the Maccabees, all uh, Greek works that are Koine period works, will talk about philotomeomai this way, that it's this civic ambition to be pleasing to the body politic, that you'll be recognized by the culture for your, uh, um, anth- anth- what's the word? Philanth- philanthropic efforts, that you are a civic uh, a father, that you are someone worthy of great honor because of all that you've done. Doan Park and uh, uh, William Doan donated the bell to our church and it's still in the connex over there. We still have the bell, Doan donated. He's the one that wrote the music to the song we started today. He was this famous uh, hymn composer for the music for Fanny Crosby, but he was a very powerful industrialist who made a lot of money in business. But he was also a musical genius. And um, he donated, where's our, our communion service we're going to use next hour? It says, donated by William H. Doan. This is the idea is that he gave so much and everyone honored him for the giving. And so he's remembered. That's philotomeomai as it's used in their Koine Greek Roman world culture. Now you're starting to understand what he means we have it as our ambition. Why? Not that we want the world around us to say, oh, well, he made his mark. No, we want to be Eurestos pleasing to him. We want God to say, I know him and his works and I approve. This is the sense, this ambition. Now, if, 
in the flesh, people want to leave their mark and have a legacy. And they do. As you, once you get to a certain level of, uh, of wealth and the, the, the super rich people, they want a legacy. They want to be known. That's what this whole Russia thing, I'm convinced, is. Is it's a person on his way out trying to make his mark. He's always been trying to make his mark. And all the great men of history try to do this. Ozymandias. We all try to build a statue so that people will remember. But they don't. The people won't remember. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. But God remembers. God knows. So the greatest, highest thing you could have is you leave a legacy, right? That's what the, okay, how much money you make. Once you get to that point, it's going to be about the legacy. How do people remember you? Beloved, it's a dead end, but in Christ, it's everything. What does God evaluate? What pleases him? This is what it means to have your ambition. The, the anthropological, the philanthropic, the philanthropy thing is to make people impressed and, and name highways after you and name, name um, you know, uh, various things. I've got a brick and my name's on the building and we built the building and I've all, who cares? Who cares? I always remember this. My mother and father were married in Slaughter Chapel <laughs> by a celebrity. The pastor that married them was a celebrity. Wally Amos Criswell, W.A. Criswell, the pastor of the largest church in the world at its time, and the, the little chapel that was left that, that, that they that since torn down that they did their weddings in was Slaughter, Slaughter Chapel. Now, I promise it had nothing to do with sacrifices and the Levitical priesthood. Why did they call that place Slaughter Chapel? Do you know why? Because there's a guy named Slaughter. A lady, Minnie? It was Minnie Slaughter. They didn't name it Minnie Slaughter Chapel. <laughs> the, the donations came in, and we honored that person, Mrs. Slaughter. Perfect. That's what we need here. We need someone with a really strange last name. <laughs> Reconnaissance Chapel or something. Anyway, um, you could just imagine, nobody knows who that is. It just sounds a crazy thing that, that your parents got married in Slaughter Chapel. And then I say, a guy named Wally married him. You're like, who's that? Well, Southern Baptists know who Chriswell was. But give it a couple generations. People that are looking into the history, like me, will dig into, oh, wow, that's great. He was a really great preacher. But there is no, there is no staying power with people's memory. It's with God. The special honor you're seeking is God's evaluation. Therefore, also, what we have is our ambition. Philotomeomai whether being at home or being absent, pleasing to be to him. And next hour, we'll look at what eurestos means, pleasing. And we'll let the text conform our characters to the character of Christ, who every step of the way, because of the great love he had for his father, sought to be pleasing to him. Father, we thank you for the eternal life we've enjoyed in thinking through who you are, knowing you through your son, and this apostle sent from the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul challenging us with a holy ambition. Father, don't let us fall short of that wonderful calling. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.